Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is all about Vittorio De Sica's 1952 film Umberto D. This is a landmark of Italian neorealism. It looks at an elderly man named Umberto Domenico Ferrari and his struggle to avoid eviction from his home in post-World War II Italy. By his side throughout the film is his beloved dog Flyke, and increasingly, as the film goes on, Umberto's situation becomes more and more desperate and hopeless. It is a classic film. It's very beloved. So many people love it, including myself. In this episode, I talk about Italian neorealism as a movement. I talk about why this film is so moving to me. I delve into themes of loneliness, financial struggle, and the power that pets can have in our lives, and much more. There are spoilers in this episode, so please be aware of that. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the work I'm doing on a monthly basis, and you can get access to rewards and extras like merchandise and bonus episodes. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode, so I'd love to give a great big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Jenny, Eddie, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Tyler, Juan, Till, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much. If financial support is not an option for you, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. If you write a review on iTunes, I will read it on a future episode of the podcast. You could tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films, or you can interact with me in a positive way on social media. I am on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. So before I get into my discussion of Umberto D. I have a little uh, segment of this episode that's dedicated to me talking about the fact that this is my 100th episode and I just wanted to speak from the heart and talk to you about it and really express my gratitude to those of you who have listened, whether you're a new listener or a longtime listener. I appreciate it so much and I just wanted to take a moment to sort of acknowledge and commemorate this important milestone that I have reached 100 episodes. And then right after that, I talk about Italian neorealism, Vittorio De Sica, and Umberto D. So here we go. to say a few words about the fact that this is my 100th episode of the podcast. This is a monumental milestone. I thought 50 was a big deal. Honestly, I never envisioned that I would get to 100. I don't want to go on about this. I've been struggling about how to even commemorate this moment or 
how to acknowledge it or recognize it because I'm not sure how to do that. And what I want to say is that this is all because of you, the listener. Those of you who are fans, those of you who have listened for perhaps years now or lots of episodes and who might have been here from the beginning or close to the beginning, or even if you're just a new listener, I got here because of you. And that's the truth. I created Her Head in Films in late 2016. I did it out of a desire to connect, to reach out, to have an outlet for my thoughts about cinema. I am a lonely person. I'm a pretty isolated person, especially living in the rural South. I don't have an art house theater near me. I don't have people nearby or around me or in my everyday life who love film the way that I do and who are cinephiles. So I just felt this need to reach out and I wanted to have a voice too. And what ended up happening for the last almost three years that I've done this podcast is that my life has changed and I've changed. I'm not the same person I was in 2016. I'm not the same person I was when I made that first episode. Doing this podcast, this is the first thing in my life that I truly feel like I have created with my own hands. I feel a sense of pride about it and I don't want to come off conceited or full of myself because I promise you I am the complete opposite of that. (laughs) I'm someone who struggles with self-hatred and low self-esteem and I never feel good enough. I never feel smart enough but this is one of the few things in my life that I do feel proud of. Now Her Head in Films is by no means a popular or successful podcast and I've made peace with it. I've made peace with the fact that I'm never going to get thousands of downloads per episode. (laughs) You know, I'm never going to have tons and tons of followers on social media. I'm not going to be some important voice in the world of film. You know, I've accepted all of that and it's okay. It's okay that the podcast is small, that it's niche, that it just has its little fan base (laughs) of those of you who listen. I've done all I can to promote it. I'll continue to promote it as much as I can, but I've pretty much accepted that it's a small podcast and I'm at peace with that because for me, it is not about how many downloads each episode gets. It's not about how many people are subscribed. It's not about how many people follow me on social media. It's not about whether, you know, the important online or cinephile people out there, all the important voices. It doesn't matter if they listen. What matters to me is is the people who do listen. What matters to me is somebody listening to an episode at a certain time in their life and it affecting them in some way. What matters to me is getting to tell my story in every episode in the way that I want to tell it because that's what Her Head in Films has really become. It's not just a place to talk about cinema. Obviously, that is its central goal. (laughs) That's what I'm trying to do. But also what I'm trying to do is to tell my story. I'm trying to take some of the most painful things that happened to me. The loss of my father, the loss of my home, the loss of my health, (laughs) um, my loneliness, my struggles with depression and anxiety, my struggles financially being from a working class background, living a very precarious, vulnerable, difficult life at times. 
I'm trying to take those experiences and share them and channel them into something productive and positive, something that could maybe help other people or connect to other people. I'm trying to take my grief, my devastation, my suffering my struggles and create something else out of them and that in turn gives my life some kind of purpose and some kind of meaning and those of you who listen are part of that this is like a relationship in a way this is a connection you know you're I'm speaking but you're listening and there's something really beautiful and symbiotic about that I I'm proud of this podcast and I'm proud of the episodes that I put out. I'm not proud of a lot of things in my life. I struggle with shame. I struggle with feeling like a failure a lot of the time. I feel like I'm nothing. I'm nobody a lot of the time because people have made me feel like that for much of my life. But I would not put these episodes out and I would not create them if I didn't feel like I was creating something of value and of meaning. So this is like one area of my life where I feel some kind of purpose. And all of you who listen, you're part of that. That's what you've given me. You've helped me build up my confidence and my self-esteem. Like I said, I am a different person. I have been transformed. I figured out in the last three years that I do have something to say, that I do have a voice, that my thoughts and my opinions are valid. And I didn't always feel that way. And if any of you were here from the beginning, I struggled a bit. And I appreciate those of you who stuck with me and who stayed with me because sometimes we have to let people change and evolve. Sometimes everybody doesn't start out with all the resources and all the bells and whistles. From the very beginning, I didn't even have a microphone. I didn't have music. I didn't know what I was doing. I started the podcast on a lark. I started it on a whim. I just thought, oh, I just want to talk about films. I'll just put this out here. (laughs) I never thought anybody would listen. I had no idea what would happen. And even though not a ton of people listen, a few do. And that's meaningful to me. So what's happened over the last few years is that I realized that I do have worth, that I do matter. I am a capable person because this is something that I've created with my own hands and I'm really protective about it and I care deeply about it. It's just given me a sense of accomplishment and a sense of, wow, I've created something. I had no resources, no help hardly, (laughs) and I've created this thing. You know, I've created this podcast I've created a space to talk about art house cinema in a deeply personal and subjective way. I feel like there's a void in a way with film podcasts that I've noticed where it's sort of either really mainstream films that you'll see at your local movie theater. Nothing against those films. They're just not what I like to watch. Or on the other extreme, it's like art house film talked about in like really academic and highly intellectual ways with really big words and theories and all of that. And I don't fit that. I'm self-taught. I have a college degree, but I can't understand theory to save my life. And all I've wanted to do is to talk about these films that get talked about that way, like really academic really theoretical and that's valid and if and I'm sure there's some film students listening to me right now it's totally fine that you engage with cinema that way 
and that you're really intellectual and academic. I'm I'm glad you're out there. I'm glad you exist and that you're doing that, right? That you're in the academy and that has value. I'm not saying it doesn't. But for me, I just wanted to talk about these films in a really accessible way. I wanted to say, hey, you can be a girl, okay, a young woman, okay, I'm 30. I can't deal with it. (laughs) I still feel like a teenager inside. You can be a young woman living in the rural South and struggling and not know a whole lot about cinema, but you can connect with these films and find value in them. That's what I've wanted to talk about, but I've also wanted to talk about my story and my life because I don't have a lot of people in my life who want to listen to me or talk to me or know me. And so this podcast has been a way for me to to share myself with the world, you know, to share my thoughts and my dreams and my feelings and my memories because I don't have a lot of people in my life that want to hear that or that care. So I created a space where I could share those things with complete strangers, those of you who are listening, but I appreciate it. I Don't take it lightly that you take an hour or two out of your day or your week and listen to what I have to say about a film and that that has value to you and that matters to you in some way. It is an honor and it is a privilege to be part of your life and I want you to know that you're part of my life too and that I would not have gotten to episode 100 without you. That's just a big deal to me and it means the world to me. Those of you who have listened, those of you who care, those of you who have stuck with me, and my patrons have helped too. Like, once I started my Patreon, that's how I was able to get music. (laughs) That's how I was able to enhance the quality. And Patreon also just gave me a sense of value of like, oh, well, there's some people out there who who really love what I'm doing and want to support me and it just completely affirmed me in a really beautiful way and it has helped me so much to have access to be able to afford to rent films or to buy books or to do research and things like that and I think it made me feel a little bit more professional or polished like oh I have a patriot I have some of these people out here so I want to give a special shout out to y'all because it it just means the world to me and it's still just shocking to me that I even have patrons but it kind of I I think it gave me a little bit more pride and it just kind of it made me step up my game a little bit right like oh, well, I have patrons, so I need to make sure the quality's good. <laughs> Even though I always try to make sure the quality is good. But um, so thank you to y'all because it gives me resources and it really helps me so much. But even if you're not a patron, but you're a loyal listener or a regular listener, I am just so grateful for you and you are part of my life and you've changed my life. You make me feel good. And the thing about Her Head and Films is that it is something that's brought happiness and joy into my life. Films are like so joyful for me. They bring pleasure and delight and loveliness and beauty. And for so long, my life has been drenched in grief and heartbreak and fear and loneliness and trauma. You know, all of these things that I talk about 
on a regular basis in these episodes. My life has just, the last, you know, 13 or 14 years since I lost my dad, it's just been so difficult. One thing after another, losing more people and then just all the upheaval that's been in my life over a decade now dealing with my health and just things but this podcast is like a space of joy it's a space where I can talk about these films that I love that's why I don't do negative reviews or really critical episodes because I just want to share my love I want to share my joy with you I want to share why a film moves me why I think it's great why it haunts me why it's important to me and part of my life And so for that reason, Her Head in Films, it just brings me so much joy and happiness. And I just want to thank all of you. You know, episode 100, this is such a big deal. This podcast has changed me. It's made me feel good about myself. It's brought me joy and beauty. And it's made me feel a little bit less lonely. You know, made me feel a little bit more connected. It still just amazes me that people listen from all over the world. People from Japan, people from Russia, people from England, Australia, everywhere. I have all kinds of uh, fans all over the world and you come from different cultures. You Sometimes you come from a different language, but obviously you know English. You come from a completely different background from me. But the one thing that connects us is our love for cinema, our love for these films. And isn't that such a beautiful, beautiful thing? Thank you so much for going on this journey with me. And we made it to 100. I don't know what comes after this. I don't know how how long I'll keep going. I'll keep going for as long as I can, obviously. But 100 episodes, that is just so major. And I'm letting that sink in as I say it. (laughs) Like, wow, this is something that I've created and produced and built with my own two hands and with my own voice and my own passion. This is my labor of love, my little labor of love. I'm just so grateful to have it. I'm grateful to have those of you who listen. And like I said, it's such an honor to be part of your lives. It's such a privilege to think that maybe I've introduced you to a film or a director that you may not have known about or thought about. Or even if I just talk about films that you've already seen, maybe it gives you insight. Maybe it, I don't know, maybe it just makes you feel more connected. Or maybe the things that I talk about, the grief, the loss, my struggles, Maybe that resonates with you and your own experience, and so it makes you feel validated or affirmed in some way. I'm sure all of y'all listen for different reasons. I'm so, so grateful. Thank you for helping me get to episode 100. This is such an amazing milestone, and I'm so glad that I can share it with you. So thank you, thank you so much. And I will stop here going on about it, but I'm just, I'm amazed. I'm really speechless. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. I'm just incredibly grateful and appreciative to all of you.
So I'm 100 episodes in and just now talking about Italian neorealism. It is about time. This is one of my favorite things ever. I think neorealism is like a world treasure. I'm so grateful for these films. I don't think that film today would be the same without this movement, honestly. And everybody loves the French New Wave, and that's fine. I like it too. It's important to me. But Italian neorealism just captures my heart along with French poetic realism, and those directors are a little, were kind of influential on this movement as well. But I love neorealism, so I'm really excited to talk about it. Many of the films that are lauded today are also some of my favorites, like The Bicycle Thieves, Umberto D, obviously, because I'm talking about it, Rome Open City. So this brand of cinema, I guess you could call it this national cinema that emerged from the Second World War in Italy, has been profoundly influential. And for me, it's been profoundly moving and important in my own life. You know, when I saw The Bicycle Thieves, I was absolutely stunned by it. And I still have quite a few Italian neorealist films to watch. I still have more Desica, more Rosalini. I haven't seen all of them by any means, but this movement, for me, what it does is that it's very connected with my own cinematic interests in the working class, the downtrodden, ordinary everyday people. And that is, I think, a theme throughout this podcast. I like to cover films like that, whether it's a Ken Loach film, or an Andrea Arnold film, or a film by the Dardan brothers. I'm really attracted to cinema about ordinary everyday people, and neorealism absolutely did that and centered that. So I do want to talk a little bit about it and go into depth about it. Now, I'm not a film scholar. I'm self-taught. I don't know everything about neorealism, but I did some more research about it, and I just want to share with you why it's so important, why it's important to me. I know that everybody may not love it. I, I'm i sure <laughs> there are people out there who don't, but for me, it just happens to be personally meaningful, and in general, I love Italian cinema. I am a huge fan of all of these directors, De Sica, Rosalini, Fellini, These have been important directors to me, and I still have more to watch, honestly. It's a rich national cinema, I think. So Italian neorealism, I want to give you like a succinct sort of summary of what it was in case you don't know. And I read some of this book uh, by Mark Scheel called Italian Neorealism Shortcuts, and it's sort of like an introduction to Italian neorealism. And they actually have lots of different stuff in the series. It's called like the Shortcut series where they go into like all kinds of different things about films. Like there's one about melodrama. There's one about film noir and women's films and like all kinds of stuff out there. I wish I could read all of them because they're really fascinating. I think I read one about silent cinema too. They're really great introductions to things for somebody like me who's like a layman and is not in the academic world or anything like that, and who just wants to understand cinema better. According to Mark Schill, Italian neorealism was, quote, a stylistically and philosophically distinctive cinema, unquote. And I think that's important. It emerged in the aftermath of the Second World War, and it's this movement that really lasted from the mid-1940s 
into the 1950s. There are debates about what film it stopped with. Mark Schill, um, I'm not sure if he says, but some of the stuff that I read, some considered Umberto D to be the end of Italian neorealism. And there's just debates about certain films that are, that should be included. Like I'm going to be covering Rosalini's Journey to Italy and there's debates about whether that would be considered a neorealist film. But Umberto D is firmly within the movement, but most people date this movement lasting from like the mid-1940s to like the early 1950s or the mid-1950s. Other landmark films that are part of neorealism would be Germany Year Zero and Paisan, both by Rosalini. And then there's also De Sica's Shine and The Bicycle Thieves, as well as Umberto D. And then there's Visconti's La Terra Trima. I have not seen La Terra Trima yet. So these three were quite important directors, Rosalini, De Sica, Visconti. What makes neorealism distinctive and why it is so important and sort of revolutionary in a lot of ways is the way that it changed the way films were made, like the actual process of making them. And Mark Schill writes that it was, quote, typified by a preference for location filming, the use of non-professional actors, a non-interventionist approach to film directing, and avoidance of complex editing and other post-production processes, likely to focus attention on the contrivance of the film stage, unquote. I mean, in a nutshell, it was about shooting on location and sometimes using non-professional actors. Sometimes they used both. And it's a very, like, free sort of cinema, right? It's shot on location. There's natural light that's being used. There's a freedom about it that you'll obviously see even more with like the French New Wave in the 1960s. The thing is, is that during the Second World War, really fascism obviously had dominated Italy and fascists had dominated the Italian film industry and Italian cinema. Italian neorealism is also a reaction to that. And I don't think we would have neorealism without the Second World War. It is a direct result of the trauma, the horror, the destruction of the Second World War in Italy and in the post-war era. And it's also a resistance to this fascist way of making films. Neorealism is really a resistance against that and a rejection of the fascist way and of fascism itself. You know, neorealism focused on ordinary people, on the working class for the most part, and was very much inspired by leftist politics like communism and socialism. And it was very concerned with like the social conditions of people's lives. That is what recurs throughout so many of the best Italian neorealist films. And a really great definition of neorealism comes from Martin Scorsese. I had the pleasure of watching his 1999 documentary called My Voyage to Italy. And it's like this deeply personal journey through Italian cinema with Scorsese and the way that these films affected him as an Italian American, as someone growing up in America who's who had family members who were immigrants from Italy. And he talks about the different films, different Italian films, and especially neorealist films that he would watch on television when he was a child. 
and the impact that they had on him. And it's deeply personal. And I always love anything Scorsese has to say about cinema. I think he is one of the greatest champions of cinema. He's an advocate for world cinema, has preserved many films, especially through the World Cinema Project that he's done with the Criterion Collection. He's like a tireless advocate for for film and film history. And yet he's also able to really talk about film in such a personal way that is very much aligned with my own feelings about film and the way that I approach cinema, especially through this podcast, where I do talk about it in a really personal way. So in my voyage to Italy, Scorsese said, quote, if you ever have any doubt about the power of movies to affect change in the world, to interact with life and fortify the soul, then study the example of neorealism. The neorealists had to communicate to the world everything their country had gone through. They needed to dissolve the barrier between documentary and fiction, and in the process, they permanently changed the rules of movie making. Unquote. Around 300,000 people died in Italy during the Second World War. It was a horrific and traumatic experience. And the end of the war brought a chance, obviously, to bear witness to that suffering. And you see that, like, in the War Trilogy by Rosalini, which is made up of Rome Open City, Paisan, and Germany Year Zero. But the end of the war was also a chance to create a new Italy. And neorealism is part of that too, of really creating this new cinematic language or this new way of doing films because they had to break with those traditions. They had to center the truth after so many lies. I mean, that's such a big part of fascism, right? Is creating this cult of personality, the cult of Mussolini, the cult of Hitler, these larger-than-life, almost mythic men in their own minds, and the way that they created that through propaganda. Think about the power of propaganda in the Second World War. And so neorealism is, is a backlash against that. It's about looking at the truth, looking at reality. And while it doesn't exactly replicate reality, it's not documentary. It's still engaging with truth and the everyday lives of people. And Mark Schill quotes Vittorio De Sica um, talking about neorealism and he says that it was quote an overwhelming desire to throw out of the window the old stories of the Italian cinema to place the camera into the mainstream of real life of everything that struck our horrified eyes unquote and Andre Bazin who is like this really important French film writer and critic and theorist he saw neorealism as, quote, a triumphant evolution of the language of cinema, unquote. He was a huge advocate for neorealism. So this focus on reality was just very important. As Schill writes, quote, oppression, poverty, crime, unemployment, homelessness, class, and power in Italian society were at the center of all the most important neorealist films from 1943 to 1948, a period generally identified as the crucible in which neorealism was formed and, which, and in which many of the most important films were made, unquote. So that's the thing, and I think that's why those films resonate with me so much, is that it is about the downtrodden. It's about people going through hardship, trying to get through certain ordeals, and just living in a society in general where there's, where there's a great deal of struggle and at times inhumanity and indifference and 
and they're trying to hold on. They're trying to get through it the best way that they can. And that's just something that really resonates with me. So neorealism was such an important movement and it had huge influence as well. You know, this idea of focusing on the social conditions of people's lives. I just don't think cinema would be the same without it. I just really don't. I love it. I love uh, the humanity in these films. And maybe some of them do have some sentimentality. There's been, I read some criticisms of Umberto D that it's sort of sentimental. Well, so be it if it's sentimental to you. I don't mind sentimental things or sentimental films. I mean, if you mean sentimental by like having emotion or feeling or, or something like that, I don't see that as a negative or as a bad thing. I guess I'm sentimental. I don't know. (laughs) But these films really speak to the lives of everyday people. And I think that's a really beautiful thing, personally. And I love films like that. But one of the most powerful things to me about neorealism is its connection to the Second World War. I mean, especially if you watch Rosalini's War Trilogy. I haven't finished it. I've seen Rome Open City. I mean, the way that he is really bearing witness to the suffering of people in Italy during the war is incredibly moving. The Second World War was just such a catastrophic event. It was so convulsive. It was such a rupture, I think. How could you not make films differently? I mean, how can life just go on as usual after all of that death, destruction, and violence, right? And I think a really good film about the Second World War that DeSica made was Two Women, which has Sophia Loren in it. And um, she plays a woman with her daughter and some things happen. It's, It's an intense film. And it's very moving and it's set during the Second World War where she's trying to protect her daughter. This is a movement in which Italian directors were trying to create a new way of making films that would capture the horror of war and the struggle of rebuilding, the struggle of living in the aftermath and the ruins of war and telling the stories of everyday people who were trying to get through life at that time who are struggling to make ends meet. Umberto D has a pension, but it's not a huge pension, and he is still struggling to get by. That's why I think the movement is so important, is that I think it shows the the suffering of the Italian people, but also their resilience and their dedication to rebuilding and to creating new lives. Just wanted to say a few words about Vittorio De Sica. He is obviously like a central director in neorealism. And he actually started out as an actor, which I think is kind of interesting. He started out in the 1920s. And he's also, he's been in quite a few films. And the main film that I've seen him in is The Earrings of Madame by Max Ovals. And he's really good in that. He's a very, he was a very elegant, handsome man, I think. He had such an elegance about him. I I love DeSica. I quite love his, all of the films by him that I've seen so far. And when he became a director, he actually made much more commercial films. But that really changed in 1944 with his film, The Children Are Watching Us. That was the first film where he worked with screenwriter Cesar Zavattini. And they would go on to do quite a few films together, including Shine, The Bicycle Thieves, and Umberto D. And there's this great little documentary on the Criterion Collection edition of Umberto D. That is about De Sica and about sort of his life and his films. I mean, it's not really in-depth. It's made up from like interviews and newsreels of him. It's called That's Life. But he said some really interesting things about neorealism, and I wanted to share those quotes. He said, quote, The urge to tell the truth stirred in us. 
Without knowing it, we were thinking of neorealism, or rather we were creating neorealism. Many say that neorealism arose from our need to save money, to spend less, but that's not true. It was really a need to tell the truth, to have the courage to tell the truth, and to take the camera not into the old studios, but out into life, into reality, unquote. And of Umberto D. specifically, De Sica said, quote, Umberto D. is the creation I love the most. First of all, because I dedicated it to my father, but also because it was about the extremely profound and horrible drama of the post-war period, old age and solitude. It's a human film in that it addresses a subject, a drama as old as man himself, people's inability to communicate. The true drama is the lack of communication that exists, not only between the elderly man and his landlady, but also between the elderly man and his ward, the young girl of the house, the maid who lives with him, who helps him, and is his friend. There's a lack of communication even between them, unquote. But I thought that was really interesting that De Sica himself really loved Umberto D, and that it was meaningful to him and he dedicated it to his father. Even though it is rooted in a specific context of post-war Italy in the, you know, 1950s, it does have a universal quality about it in the way that it's about an elderly man struggling to get by and to try not to be evicted and lose everything. And there's just something about that that I think resonates with people. I don't even think you have to be elderly to relate to it, but it's this sense of somebody being sort of thrown away of somebody being forgotten or overlooked and not knowing how to deal with what's going on in his life, not knowing how to cope with everything that he's losing, of everything that is outside of his control. And you see him desperately trying to keep everything together to put off the inevitable, which is the eviction, doing everything he can, everything within his power to avoid it. But of course, in the end, he can't. It's outside of his control. It's interesting to note that Umberto D was actually not a big success at all. It was a box office failure, particularly in Italy. Now, before this, the collaborations between De Sica and the screenwriter Zavatini had done really well. Shoeshine and Bicycle Thieves had been huge successes, but Umberto D was not. It did fare better with international critics who really, I think, lauded it. But at home, it did not perform well. And from what I've read, that was that one of the factors for that was that it was so bleak to a lot of audiences. Because this is a film about this man being evicted and then thinking about suicide and almost going through with it. And this is a dark film in a lot of ways, and it is bleak. And so I can kind of understand why audiences recoiled from that a bit. But I think it's also a very truthful and like real film because of that. I mean, nowadays, this is a very highly regarded film. It is considered, I think, not just a classic of neorealism, but of world cinema. I mean, even Ingmar Bergman really admired it. Uh, I looked on Wikipedia. I don't know how uh, accurate this is, but they said that he watched the film many times, that it was one of his favorite films. And I do wonder if it in part inspired Wild Strawberries, his 1957 film. I have an episode about Wild Strawberries. I really love it. And it is about an elderly man. There's not a lot of things in common between the two films, 
there's no pet, you know, there's, he's not being evicted from his home or anything. But I guess like the way that both films focus on an elderly man or an elderly character is pretty unique because you don't see elderly characters a lot in cinema. At least I haven't. And so I would kind of, I just wonder because Wild Strawberries came out in 1957, a few years after Umberto D. You have to wonder, did it perhaps inspire it? It could, it could not have, you know, there may be no connection to it, but I thought that was interesting. The man who plays Umberto is Carlo Battisti, and he was actually not an actor at all. He was a professor at a university. He was a non-professional, and I thought he did such an extraordinary job. Uh, in the film, I'll definitely talk more about his performance, but I just think it's important to note that like he was a professor. He wasn't even an actor. Now, the little dog, Flyke, was actually played by a trained dog like this dog was like a performing dog or something like that and his name was napoleon he's such a cute dog right i just think that's fascinating that the main character is a non-professional actor but then the dog was trained and the dog did a superb job i think as flyke he's just such a sweet dog right like how can you not love this dog so i just wanted to give you some background about italian neorealism Sica some things about the film. I'm by no means trying to give you everything there is. It's not exhaustive in any way, but I like to do research when I do these episodes, and I just wanted to share some information that I came across. So let's talk about Umberto D, this amazing film. I saw it a few years ago for the first time. It just moved me. I think I was going through a period where I was watching more of the neorealist films, I had watched The Bicycle Thieves and then found Umberto D. This one just touched me so much. And when I got to thinking about covering about, when I got to think about covering Italian cinema on the podcast, this was one that stood out for me. I felt like there was a lot in it. There was a lot that I could say about it because it's a pretty simple story in a lot of ways. But there's a lot going on in it. I don't think it's as simple as it seems of just this pensioner and him trying not to get evicted and, you know, stuff with his dog. And, you know, I think it, I think if you go by like the, the Criterion Collection cover, and there's actually two, I think when they reissued it or when they did maybe the Blu-ray or something, there's a different cover where it shows Umberto holding Flyke. So it looks like this heartwarming film oh a man and his dog and it is in a lot of ways it's about a person and their dog and that connection and that beautiful relationship but it's also much darker and deeper even bleak at times I think when you watch the film I wouldn't say that the ending is happy I would say that it's very open-ended and ambiguous and unsettling in a lot of ways it is heartwarming in some respects but then it's also heartbreaking in other ways. And I'm just going to go through, I'm going to talk about different themes. Sometimes I go chronologically through a film. I don't think I want to do that with this. I just kind of want to ramble a little bit, but I also just want to talk about main themes in the film. So for me, something that makes this film really special or unique is the way that it's really focusing on old age and the treatment of the elderly, which we don't see a lot in films. For the most part, cinema tends to focus on young people or like people in their 30s or 40s, right? 
I would say that elderly people, older people tend to be invisible, erased. You just don't see a lot of films about them out there. And especially a portrait like this that is so hard-hitting. You know, I think it's very interesting that the film opens with this protest that's happening where all these old men have come together to protest about their pensions and they want their pensions to be raised. They need more money to survive and live on. Now, things that I read, this is not a film necessarily about the working class because Umberto is not working. He is on a pension and he would probably be considered maybe more middle class or something, even though he is just kind of living in a room in a boarding house, kind of. I mean, I guess it's an apartment, but it's sort of just like one big room in this block, right? But it certainly is about a figure, I think, who is struggling, who is downtrodden, who has financial insecurity. He's not poor by any means, but he is struggling in a lot of ways. What's also interesting about this film is that the main character is not particularly likable and he is for the most part to blame for his own problems in some ways because he has debts and that's a big part of the film where we hear it multiple times that he has these debts that he needs to pay off and he's talking to these other old men and he's like yeah, if, if they increase the pension by 20%, I could pay off my debts. We don't know what those debts are. We don't know if he's gambling. We don't know if what he could be doing to be so in debt. Although he is behind on his rent. We do know that. And that's a big part of the film is the fact that his landlady wants the money up front. Like he he's behind several months and she wants it now. And she won't take half. She won't take a third. She wants the full amount now. And I think it's interesting uh, what DeSica said about the lack of communication. I'm not sure if I totally agree because the landlady and Umberto do communicate, right? <laughs> uh, the communication is just that she is unwilling to wait for him to get the full amount of money. She won't take half of it. She's very unbending, she's not going to change. She communicates very well with Umberto what she wants, mainly through the maid. It's very rare for the landlady and Umberto to be like directly in contact. They mainly communicate through Maria, the maid. She is threatening to evict him. And that's really the central drama of this film is this old man trying to figure out a way to get out of this. And he goes through multiple things where he tries to sell a watch. And he eventually does sell the watch, but for a lot less than what he wanted to. He goes to the hospital. And from what I gathered from those scenes where he goes to the hospital, at first he, he does have a real condition. He has tonsillitis, but it's not particularly serious. It's not something where he needs to be there for weeks, but he needs to be in the hospital so that he can save money because they're going to feed him in the hospital and he's going to save money that way. And that doesn't work. It's really about this old man trying to come up with these various schemes to make money or, you know, to sell a watch, to go to the hospital, to try to avoid this eviction or defer it or come up with the money to avoid it. And 
it not working in his favor. He's not able to do that. But in some respects, he has gotten himself into the situation. You know, he's not a perfect character. He is a flawed character. But at the same time, I think that it does look at structural issues here where the pension is not maybe enough to live on. Because look at the, look at the protest. A lot of these men in the protest may not have debts and they themselves are struggling to live on the pension. Umberto happens to have debts. We don't know why. There could be legitimate reasons for why he's gone into debt. We see that these other men are not able to live on that pension either. And that seems to be a big issue for me personally is that these are men who are not getting enough money to live on and they are demanding to have more money and they are calling out the government. They are calling out the people who do these pensions and shaming them and tr or trying to shame them and showing them what a disgrace it is the way that they are treating their old people, their elderly. And I do think this is an important subject because here in America, and I'm sure in a lot of other countries, old people, the elderly are overlooked. They're not cared for. They're often neglected. Many of them do live in poverty here in the United States. They they get social security, but a lot of them don't get enough to live on. It's a struggle for a lot of elderly people. And they get forgotten by family or they get put in nursing homes or whatever. The treatment of the elderly is really heartbreaking to me. I do think it says something about a society, the way that you treat the elderly and also the way you treat children. And I don't think American society is particularly kind or good to its elderly people. Like, that's just my opinion. How do you justify that? And so that seemed to be a struggle in post-war Italy of look at all the devastation this country went through. And then how do you take care of the most vulnerable among you? Not that Umberto is particularly vulnerable, vulnerable at least he has a pension, there may be people who don't even have one, but it's not really enough for him to live on. And so much of this film is about a man trying to hold on to his dignity, right? And I noticed the way that Umberto dresses. He is always so nice looking when he goes out. He has his suit on. I mean, men always dressed really nice back then, but he doesn't look sloppy. He looks very well put together in comparison with some of the other men that we see throughout the film, especially those who do some begging. Um, he sees them begging on the streets. He looks very nice, very well put together. He always has his hat on. He's a man with like dignity and maybe not elegance, but he certainly has like a gravitas about him. And you can tell that he cares about his appearance. He's very well-groomed and things like that. And that seems to matter to Umberto. His self-image matters. His sense of dignity and self-respect really matters to him. It's very hard for him to beg. It's just hard, you know? He's worked his whole life. He earned that pension. And then he's put in a situation where he's having to grovel and he's not good at that at all <laughs> but I kind of like that he's unlikable I kind of like that he's prickly 
I don't mind characters who are unlikable. I really don't, whether it's men or women. But in particular, women usually have to bear the burden of that, of being likable and pliable and subservient and pleasant. We tend to get to get um, put into that role. I think it would be interesting to see like a an elderly woman in this role. That might have been interesting. But Umberto, he's trying to hold on to that dignity as an old man in a society that doesn't seem to really value the elderly and doesn't seem to value uh, giving them enough money to live on. And even though he has created those debts himself, that doesn't negate the structural issue that is these pensions are not enough. And there's a lot of other people who want an increase, who need an increase, and who are struggling. And Umberto's experience seems to be almost like a microcosm of a larger issue plaguing Italian society at that time of why are we not taking care of, of these elderly people? Why are their pensions not enough? Why are we not increasing it? And these men doing this protest, but then the protest just kind of fizzles out. They didn't get the right permit for it. And it just kind of, it's interesting because it's the only moment in the film of solidarity or community or connection. I also get the sense in this film, the way that Italian society was being represented is like a very every man for himself kind of situation after the war. I don't know if that's how it truly was, but that's something that comes off in the film of there's not a lot of community. There's not a lot of people looking out for each other in this in this world or in this city where he lives. You're on your own. Like you've got to survive. Everybody's trying to figure out a way to survive. Whether it's Maria the maid or Umberto or even his landlady. She's hiking up the price and she's going to kick him out. Yes, he is behind on rent, but it seems to me that even if he was on time with the rent, she was still going to kick him out because she's making more money by renting the room out to these lovers and stuff. Because when Umberto comes back or he goes to his room one day, there's these people in it and he doesn't know who they are and the landlady has let them rent it. So it's possible she's going to go in that direction or she just knows that she can hike up the rent and it is forcing somebody like Umberto out on the streets. Umberto does not have family or friends. He's, he tells that to one of the protesters. He's like, I don't have any siblings. I don't have any children. I don't have anything. I'm just a good-for-nothing old man or something like that. He's saying it in a joking way. But he is alone in the film. He does not have somebody that's going to take him in. He doesn't have a... Uh, a child to say hey dad come live with me or something like that it's very real that he's going to be kicked out onto the street and not have anywhere to live that is what he is facing that is like the central drama of the film is that he is going to be homeless he's not going to have anywhere to go what is he going to do and society created that and tolerates it Umberto's not the only person in that boat and we see that through the other people who are begging and through the people who are protesting about the pensions. But the protest itself is like this very ephemeral, uh, transient moment of community and connection 
where Umberto is like talking to other old men and, you know, they're sort of airing their grievances and their struggles. And then it's quickly over. The protest ends and everybody goes back to their individual lives and all of that. It was like this one moment of uh, solidarity and then it's over with. And there's something like really sad about that to me that through the protest he connects with other people but then he's right back on his own except for Flyke, his dog of course and for me a really central thing about this film is it's really about what it means to be alone and I mean really alone without a support system I don't know if some people actually know what that's like to have nobody to not have friends to not have family to not have any net there to catch you, no one to take you in, no one to help you. And that is where Umberto is. In a way, I sort of live that. I do not have some big extended family to help me. I do not have lots of friends to help me. I am very alone in the world for the most part. I have my mom and that's about it. It scares me at times how alone I am and how vulnerable I am and how like precarious my life is. I just don't know if like everybody can understand that who has lots of friends or has family, what it's like to face that. And that's what Umberto is facing is he's really going to be kicked out of his apartment and there's nobody there to scoop him up and help him. There's nobody to take him in. There's nobody to loan him the money. And his loneliness is profound in this film. I think you don't have to be an elderly person to relate to that. I mean, I think there are people who feel lonely. And then there are people who are literally lonely. (laughs) I mean, there's a difference to me. There's people who feel alone, but then have lots of friends, right? Or they have family and... I understand that internal loneliness of that disconnection and but there is like a literal loneliness where you have nobody to lean on you have nobody who's there to catch you no one who has your back no one who has your interests at heart nobody who's your advocate or fighting for you or loving you or caring about you I have my mom and I'm really grateful for that and I'm lucky to have that but I don't have much beyond that and it wears you down and it it like has physical effects on me to be in the kind of loneliness that I'm in and that I have felt for much of my life where I've just been sort of forgotten abandoned disposable and it's something at 30 year old 30 years old that I am still struggling with and that I don't really know how to cope with at all is why you know I've gotten to this point I just turned 30 and it's been it was a big revelation to me this birthday like I turned 30 in July and I'm recording this in August of 2019 I didn't get lots of cards I didn't get lots of gifts you know I'm really lucky to have my mom and she gave me some stuff and that was it you know I didn't have like this big family to send me cards I didn't have people who cared that I was born And that I exist. And I felt really pathetic. Like sharing about it online. Like I. Like I posted about my birthday. Birthday online. Like on Twitter. And Instagram. 
And the reason I did that was because I just wanted some people to say happy birthday to me. <laughs> Even if they were strangers and they don't really know me. I just wanted people to say happy birthday like they cared. Like they cared that I'm alive. I just wanted to feel like remembered. And so the only way I could get that was to post online. Just so I could hear it. Because I didn't get lots of cards and presents. I didn't have some big birthday party. It was me and my mom. And her husband. And my dog. <laughs> that was my birthday for my 30th. You know? You know, some people have big bashes with all kinds of people there. And I didn't have that. And... I just feel so alone, you know? I mean, I'm not sharing this to get pity or anything. <laughs> I feel like maybe I've made certain decisions or mistakes that have led me here. I don't know how I got to this point where I'm this alone. I don't know. I feel like I didn't get a really good family because I'm estranged from a lot of them because of things that happened with the death of my father and just stuff that I've been through in my life. Um, I did not get good relatives. And I think some people can relate to that where you just, you don't get the pick of the litter, okay? <laughs> you don't get the cream of the crop with family and that's what happened to me. Plus I've moved and I'm states away from people that I'm related to at this point. And if you're out of sight, you're out of mind with a lot of people. <laughs> so nobody keeps in touch or anything like that. Not that there's anything to keep in touch with. And I just, I guess I go through in my mind, like, what have I done wrong? What have, What is wrong with me that so few people love me or care about me? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be honest about it. I feel like there's something seriously wrong with me that I'm 30 years old and have barely any friends and no family and I'm this alone in the world and this alone in my life. I just feel like, what have I done? Why? Why is my life like this? What is going on? You know? And I know I shouldn't feel that way, but it's like I feel defective in some way that there's something wrong with me or I've done something seriously wrong to get into this situation where my life means so little to so few people. I know this is a tangent, but I feel like some of you can maybe relate where you're in a similar place and you, maybe you're younger than me or maybe you're older than me. You just wonder what went wrong, you know? Why are you so alone? And I have those same questions. I don't feel like I'm a terrible person. I do like myself sometimes and on some days. And I just don't know how I got to this point, like, and I don't know what to do about it. So I'm just saying there is a kind of loneliness that is like objective, where you don't just feel it. Like some people feel it, but in actuality have lots of people they could reach out to. I do not have that. <laughs> like I'm on my own for the most part. I've just made a lot of changes with this birthday turning 30. I can't explain it. It's like, I just felt like... I needed to make changes and I did that mostly online. I've really cut back on how much I am online, on social media, how much I share. I've basically disengaged from it and I realized that it cannot give me the emotional fulfillment that I crave 
And I also realized that a lot of my connections with people online were shallow and were not substantive and were not meaningful. And I had to learn that the hard way. (laughs) It's not enough. You know, online relationships or connections are not enough. I have maybe a couple of people that I really trust that I reach out to that I can really talk to, open up with and be myself and who are really genuinely there for me and care about me. But I just realized that the time I was putting into stuff online and all of that was not working for me and that my time and my energy would be better spent in other things like reconnecting to real life and everyday life. So I am very much more disengaged and disconnected from the online world and from social media. And it's been a healthy thing. I'm back to reading books. I'm back to writing more. I'm back to just engaging with my real everyday life again. And I would encourage you to do the same. I mean, I don't want to tell other people how to live But I think when you disengage from social media, you realize how much it affected you and how much it almost like, I don't know, it just does something to your brain. The way that you process information when you're on Twitter or something like that. And I find that the less time that I spend on those spaces, the happier I am. And I just realized that those things did not fulfill me emotionally and that they never could and that I was giving a lot more than I was receiving especially with different um, interactions and relationships online and so I just came to that revelation for myself it's up to you you know if you ever want to reduce your time I just would encourage it you're never going to be able to not have social media in your life But I'm telling you, it is possible to reduce your time on it and to take your life back from it. And like, seriously, to read books again, to, you know, to be in real life again and to get away from the noise and the chaos and the craziness that is online. I promise you, it is possible. And it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. Am I still lonely? Yeah, but I was lonely before too. At least I can channel that loneliness into something else like art or writing or something like that. And I know I've gone on a tangent, but that's what this podcast is about. <laughs> it's about me talking, but the mainly the social media that I do now is just for the podcast. I don't do personal social media anymore. Um, I just focus on her head and films and do that. And it's been healthy all around for me to reduce it in that way. And just be present online in a really positive way. And to say, here's the films that I love. And yeah, that's that's what I really enjoy. I decided to make social media about joy again. (laughs) And like happiness. And yeah, just sharing my passion, sharing what I love. That's what I want to do. I want to bring positivity into the world. What I've been trying to say is that there just is a type of loneliness that is like corrosive and it's deeply painful and that I have known that loneliness and that I saw that kind of loneliness in Umberto where he is like literally alone for the most part except for Flyke and Maria 
that's pretty alone to me, you know, to only have a dog and a young girl. I mean, that's it. That's all he's got. I, I thought that was really a heartbreaking aspect of of this film. Uh, for a moment, I just want to say, I think this film has some interesting parallels in its look at affordable housing in a way. Because a big part of this is that the Umberto's rent is going to go up and he can't afford it. His pension doesn't pay him enough to afford the rent that the landlady's going to jack up. And it made me think a lot about nowadays how hard it is to find affordable housing. Like especially in places like San Francisco or a lot of these tech places like wherever Google is or whatever how rents have skyrocketed in those areas and it's so hard for everyday people to afford them but it's a problem outside of the cities when i was looking for housing after we moved um, because i went through a move recently and i've lived in several states the last few years and it's it's been so destabilizing at times but it's been really hard trying to find a place to live and rent is so high and So it's something that a lot of people struggle with. And that theme of the film, I found really resonant that this is, this could be anybody. Anybody could have their rent go up and them not be able to afford it. Like I've heard horror stories in San Francisco of people living in their cars, people becoming homeless because their landlord went up on their rent and they couldn't afford it anymore and they had nowhere to go. So that's actually a pretty common story. A lot of people go through that and it is a structural issue. It is a, it's an issue of the system that nobody is doing anything to make housing more affordable for people. And Umberto, it seems like, had no protections when it came to the landlady. He had nobody he could go to to protect him. And he would maybe not even get any help because he's behind on his rent, too. That could be an issue, too, that they may not even help him, even if there was um, a place he could go or recourse. But it sounds like the landlady has all the power. She can raise the rents, and there's nothing he can do about it. And that's something that resonates with today as well. And I wanted to talk about Maria and Umberto. To me, both of the films about Umberto, obviously, But it's a little bit about Maria, too, and about their struggles. Maria is the maid working at this boarding house or this, I I don't even know what to call it. I guess it's like an apartment building. I'm sorry if I'm not using the right terminology here. (laughs) But she works as a maid there, and she's pregnant. And she's been involved with two men, and she doesn't know which one is the father of her child. But throughout the film, she is like a steady presence in Umberto's life. As I was re-watching the film, it occurred to me that this film is really about the struggles of both Maria and Umberto, and in a lot of ways, both of them are like at the bottom of the totem pole. She as a woman, especially as a young woman, and he as an old person. You know, these are lives that are very devalued in a lot of societies, and Maria is like, she's such a kind soul. She's really the only person in the whole film who cares about Umberto. Uh, But she has her own issues as well, obviously. And that's very much on her mind. Um, Because she knows that if the landlady finds out that she's pregnant, she'll be kicked out. So they're actually both dealing with the potential of being homeless or being kicked out. And she knows that if she goes back to her hometown, 
and her father finds out that she's pregnant that he will beat her. So this film also speaks to the difficult conditions of women's lives of sexism and misogyny within Italian society and it's alive and well here in American society too. And it occurred to me watching it that Umberto is probably like a father figure to her or a grandfather figure to her. You know, her own father sounds incredibly violent. And Umberto is nothing like that. He is an abrasive man. He's not the most likable person, but he's certainly not violent or hurtful. And over the course of the film, he really starts to care for Maria. You know, there's that heartbreaking scene where he's leaving. He has packed his suitcase near the end of the film. He tells her that he has some stuff in his drawer and that she can have it. And he actually lies to her in that scene. It's near the end. Yeah, it's like near the end of the film. It's like the middle of the night. And he's sort of sneaking out of the apartment. He's got his suitcase. And we're not sure where he's going to go. And he's probably not sure where he's going to go at that point either. Maria hears him leaving. And, you know, comes to talk to him. And he lies. And he tells her that he found another place to live. And he's imploring her to leave and to not stay there with the landlady. I really do think that he wants better things for her in that moment. This scene is so moving to me because it shows Umberto like in very extreme close up. You can see the weariness in his face. Like by the end of the film, he is broken down. I mean, he is. He has tried to get money for the rent. He can't get it the landlady won't even take some of the rent she wants the full amount he can't win his by this time they're doing renovation on his room too and there's like this huge hole in the wall he's literally living in like the ruins of his life in a way and so he just decides to leave he's trying to tell maria to get out while she can while she's young And he even wants to give her some stuff that he's left in his dresser. He gets on this bus and when he looks out the window, Maria is watching him. She's got her head out of the apartment window and she's watching him leave. I think in that moment, you can sense that Maria really cares about him as a person. Maybe she didn't buy his lie. She may not even believe him that he found another place to live. She may suspect that he's lying. I don't know the image of her head sticking out of that window watching him leave. There's something profoundly heartbreaking about it. Like here are these two people and you don't really know what's going to happen to either one of them by the end of this film. What is Maria going to do? Like neither one of these guys wants to take responsibility for her baby and she doesn't know exactly which one is the father. Umberto, at the end, he, you know, he tries to commit suicide, but he, he can't do it. He stops himself before he goes that far. But he's still going to be evicted. You know, he's left the apartment. He can't go back. There's nobody to take him in. We don't know what's going to happen to Umberto, and we don't know what's going to happen to Maria either. And that open-endedness is disturbing in a way of here are these two people at such different stages of their lives maria is at the beginning of her life and umberto is at the end of his and both of them can't really find a place in this new post-war italian society where it's probably 
valuing the young and the strong and the, you know, opposed to a young pregnant girl and an elderly pensioner. Like I said, they're like at the bottom of the totem pole in this in this hierarchy. Neither one of them has a lot of resources or a lot of help or a lot of support. And to me, it's kind of sad. It's like, wow, I wish they could have stayed together in some way. I wish they could have supported each other. Like maybe they could move in together. I'm just dreaming here that Umberto and Maria could live together and he could be like this nice father figure to her and, you know, or grandfather figure to her and little Flyke could live with them and Maria could have her baby and, you know, they could make it work, you know. I guess in your dreams, that's what you wish would happen. And now I kind of see what DeSica meant about the lack of communication. That that is a big part of this film that why couldn't Umberto have suggested something like that? Like, hey, leave here. Don't work here anymore. Let's, I don't know how appropriate it would even be though for them to move in together, right? I'm just dreaming. But if, like, if that could have happened or if they could have, communicated with each other and been like hey you know we're both struggling let's join forces and support each other I think that could have been a really beautiful thing but I don't know how society would have viewed that like here is this old man and this young girl like could they really have lived together or supported each other or something like that but I kind of in my dreams wish that it could have happened So we see two people who are really marginalized in the society, who don't really have a place, who don't really belong, who don't have support and love and caring in their worlds, in their lives. And it's really sweet to me the way that they do sort of connect with each other. And it also occurred to me that the way that Maria and Umberto are treated, it's like really similar to the way that animals are treated, like Flyke the dog. I mean, what comes to mind is the scene at the pound that is just so incredibly devastating. You know, Umberto goes into the hospital with his tonsillitis. He's trying to save some money. He's hoping he can stay there for a little while. It doesn't work out that way. He has to leave. But while he's gone, he had to leave Flyke at the apartment. And he asked Maria to look after Flyke. And one day Flyke sort of ran out and ran away. So Umberto has to go to the pound to look for him. And it is absolutely heartbreaking when we are at the pound and seeing all these dogs being brought there. And then that scene where they're like in this cart, all these dogs, and then they take them to the euthanasia area, the place where they kill the dogs. I guess they gas them or something like that. And we see these dogs being put into this container where we know that they're going to be killed and Umberto sees it and he seems kind of shaken by it from what I can remember and that scene is incredibly just devastating to watch you are hoping to god that Umberto finds flight and he does it's such a sweet scene but you see the way the dogs are treated that there's no place for them they're not taken care of they're not given a home really There's nobody to look out for these animals and these beautiful pets. I think Umberto knows. I think that's partly what keeps Umberto alive is that he knows that if he's not alive to take care of Flyke, nobody else is going to do it. It's on him to take care of that dog. That's partly, I think, what helps him survive and to not commit suicide 
is his connection to the dog. But the way that these dogs are treated is in some way similar to the way that the people are treated. This sense of not having value, of being nothing in a lot of ways. And I see that with Umberto and Maria as well, that these are people who are not valued in society in a lot of ways. He's just an old man that you can kick out. She's just a pregnant girl that these guys can discard and not take any responsibility for or take care of. That is just devastating. It's devastating to feel like you're nothing and to be treated by society as though you are nothing and your life has no value. I don't think the film would be the same without Carlo Battisti. He was a professor. He's a totally non-professional actor. And yet he has so much pathos when he is in the film. Not the most likable man, but the face of Carlo is just full of anguish at times and brokenness and tiredness. Especially by the end of the film, he's tired. Everything he's come up with to try to evade the eviction is not working. He feels like he has no other options. And you just feel that in the performance. Like in the close-ups of Batiste's face. I don't know. You just see it in his eyes. Like when he's talking to Maria that time. When he's leaving. And says that he found a place to go. Like there's tears in his eyes almost. They're like glistening. Like you don't see faces like this anymore. You don't see eyes like this in films that's something that I think neorealism was pretty brilliant at, was finding faces, was finding these non-professional actors, like the father in The Bicycle Thieves. Now, I don't know if he's a professional actor. I don't know that. But the actors that were used in these neorealism films, they stay with you. They convey like like a humanity, like an everyman type of of ordinary dignity to their performances. All the ones that I've seen, Umberto D, Rome Open City, all of that, all of them have brilliant actors, whether they're professional or non-professional. Their faces stick with you. Their performances stick with you. And I think Batisti in this film is just, I don't know, he just feels like he could be your own grandfather, right? Or you feel like he's the kind of man you just see on the street anywhere. And he has that quality about him, like this everyman type of thing. But there's so much anguish in his face. Like, really? Like, think of the scene where he's begging. Like, there is such anguish in that scene of, I don't want to do this. I am, <laughs> you feel the complete desperation of this man's life. And I think so few of us can actually understand that kind of desperation. I have like tasted it, honestly, because I've been through a lot of stuff in my life. I've gone through times where I didn't have a lot of food. I've gone through times, like one in, time in particular, why I was almost homeless. And I had a very real fear that that was going to happen to me and to my mom. I can't explain to you the primal like fear and terror and just desperation that I felt when it was happening. Batiste is able to convey that desperation of Umberto. That here is this man who, he's on the street, right? And he's gonna beg. He's, you can tell he's thinking about it. He's figuring it out, you know. 
how am I going to do this? And puts his hand out and somebody comes by. He can't go through with it. And he moves his hand. I think it was Roger Ebert's review, possibly, that that compared it a bit to Charlie Chaplin. That the scene, it's a desperate scene. It's a heartbreaking scene. But there's something comedic about it at the same time, which is an interesting mixture and juxtaposition there, where this is a horrible scene. Like, this man has truly lost his dignity in a lot of ways. And he's having to confront the loss of his dignity. But then, you know, when he moves his hand, that's kind of funny in the moment. Or then when he puts his hat in Flyke's mouth, there's something like adorable about this dog with this hat in its mouth, right? It's like, what is this? What am I looking at? Like, look at this adorable dog with this hat in its mouth. It's like a trick. But in fact, this is a scene of exquisite pain, of terrible pain. All of that is there. That's the brilliance of De Sica, I think. The way he could sometimes meld the humor with the devastation. That's like, I think that's almost like Umberto's rock bottom, where he's on the street having to do that. And I've seen, I mean, we've all seen people out on the streets begging with their signs up and things like that. And there's very cruel myths and lies spread about people who do that. That I'm not saying there's not some people who are probably perfectly fine in life who go and do it. I don't even know what the statistics would be on that. I obviously can't rule it out. But I would say that the majority of people who are doing that, who are begging, who are on the streets, don't want to be. That this is a desperate experience for them. And I myself have looked at them and thought, that could be me. And I've wondered, how do you do that? I can't imagine having to do that. And it makes you grateful that you are not having to do that. But the pain that they must feel and the judgment that comes with it and the shame that comes with it. Because that is, that is a scene not just of desperation, but of shame. And shame is profoundly corrosive in our lives. You can tell that Umberto is grappling with that shame in that moment. And so he tries to defer it to Flyke. He tries to put it on Flyke. Like, you put my hat in your mouth and then I won't have to do it. He's almost like a surrogate for Umberto. Like, I don't have to be on the street. I'll put my dog on the street to beg instead of me having to do it. Because this man who is always groomed and always has himself together and always looks very dignified, he cannot accept that. He just can't accept that that is where his life has gone. And I would say that that is one of the things that probably pushes him to the suicide, to the idea of suicide is that I'm at this point of desperation. And in fact, it's a little bit after that scene that he goes back to his room and it's there's all kinds of renovation happening, right? He's just sitting alone in his room and it looks like it's been bombed. There's a huge hole in the wall and he starts to think about death and it makes sense. It makes total sense in that moment why he would be thinking about death. He's going to lose his home. He has no friends or family and nowhere to go. This film is, in a lot of ways, about a forgotten person. Someone completely alone and without options. And like I said, I've been there. I've been to that precipice and I have felt the fear of it. The fear of like, what is going to happen to you? How are you going to make it? 
these very basic questions, and when they cannot be answered, they can cause true terror inside of you. And not everybody has to face that. There are a lot of people who will never face that. And be thankful if you've never had to. To me, Umberto's suicidal thoughts are completely believable and realistic within the film. And we see where Umberto opens the window and he's looking down at the street. And it's almost like he's imagining himself falling towards it because there's this close-up of the street of the cobblestones. And it's almost like a way for DeSica to put us into the mind of Umberto and into the emotion and the feeling of actually jumping and falling down to the cobblestones. Death becomes an answer for Umberto. It becomes an escape. But then what is equally realistic to me is when he looks at Flyke. That's maybe why he doesn't jump. And some people see this film as sentimental. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't think of sentimentality as something negative or pejorative. It tends to get applied to films about women a lot of the time or things related to women. So I don't particularly like the negativity around the term. I don't mind things that are about sentiment, that are about emotion, that are about feeling. This film is very bleak. It's quite bleak. (laughs) But I think what saves the film is the dog. I think Flyke saves the film. I think without Flyke, it would not be the same film. It would lack a certain amount of warmth that I do think it needs to sort of balance out the intense bleakness and and fear that is in the film. The fear on the part of Umberto of what's going to happen to me in my life. How terrifying that is and how there's no answer to it and nobody who comes to save the day. Nobody's going to come and save Umberto. So it is a very brutal film. There is no hope in this film, in my opinion. Even the ending to me is not hopeful. But there is a beauty to it because of the dog and Umberto's relationship with the dog. That is what gives the film just, I don't know, it just gives it something really beautiful because it's real. Because there are people back then and now who have really beautiful, intense relationships with pets. And their pets help them through life. I have a dog. His name is Boomer. And he has profoundly affected my life. He has been with me for almost a third of my life. Almost 10 years. And I know that he's helped my mental health. And I know that he's really helped my mom. I went to college in 2010. And I swear to you, the day I went to college, my mom went to the local shelter and got Boomer. So Boomer is my replacement. (laughs) He has replaced me. He's like number one in her heart. (laughs) And I'm like number two now, maybe farther down some days. So we absolutely love Boomer. He's like Flyke in a lot of ways. He's like this little white puppy dog. He's adorable. I love Flyke so much. Have we been through difficult things over the last 10 years? Yes. Very difficult things in our lives. Losing, I lost my house. I lost my home in 2015. And that was where I had lived my entire life for 26 years up to that point. That was the home I lived in. I lost most of my belongings because we couldn't fit them all into our car. <laughs> I lost a lot of books and all kinds of things that were very important to me. I went through that. I lived through it. We were almost homeless 
And it was a terrifying ordeal that I went through pretty much on my own with my mom. I've been through some of this and it's terrifying. It's hard to even put it into words. I have struggled with it for years now. And what happened to me and everything that I lost. And I've moved to several states. That's been difficult. And doing it without a lot of resources, without a lot of help, without a lot of emotional support. It has been brutal at times. And it has taught me that I am alone for the most part. That the people you think are going to be there for you are not going to be there for you. They're not. And I've learned some difficult lessons not to rely on people for the most part. That they are not capable of being there. I don't trust people. And I'm very guarded and very protective of myself at this point in my life. And I probably always will be. Because of my experiences with people on and offline. I've been through a lot the last few years. I know some of these experiences that Umberto is facing. And I also know what it's like to have the love of an animal, the love of a pet, the love of a dog. We also had a cat and she died in 2016 and she was the first pet I ever had and it was very devastating. But Boomer has been a constant support to me and he's been a really big support to my mom and has really helped her a lot. So it's absolutely realistic to me that Umberto is contemplating suicide and then looks at his dog and that is what gets him through. And if people want to call that sentimental or whatever, you can do that. I don't agree. And I don't agree that it's a negative thing. To me, it is absolutely believable that this old man who feels tired and broken and terrified and who is thinking of killing himself decides not to so that he can take care of his dog because he knows that the dog's either going to go to the pound where it might be killed or it might be taken care of. He goes to see some people at some point in the film who take dogs in, but they don't seem to be particularly good at it or anything. And once the money runs out, once the person stops paying them, they just let the dog go. They just run the dog off. So he knows if he kills himself and then the money he gives these people runs out, Flake's going to be on the street. That's just the truth of it. And he doesn't want Flake to go through that. He doesn't want to be on the street and he doesn't want Flake to be on the street either. So Flake is what keeps him alive, I think. And to me, that's real. We all have thoughts of death sometimes, of not wanting to be here and then we remember why we are here or we hold on to what we have because in the end we do want to live. We're just in a lot of pain. We just don't want to live in this world anymore where our lives are disposable and devalued the way that Umberto's is. And so Umberto holds on to Flyke because Flyke depends on him. He has to take care of this dog. No one else is going to do it. And that obligation that he feels to Flyke is very powerful. And I think it is what keeps him going at times is that, well, there's nobody to take care of me, but I have to take care of this dog. This dog is everything that I have in the world. And the thing is, pets often treat us better than people do. They are there for us. They give us unconditional love. And some of us rarely receive that from other human beings. We rarely receive that kind of love. We only get it from our animals and our pets. And that's just the truth. So to me, Umberto's suicidal thoughts and things like that were totally 
realistic because he has no idea what's going to happen to him or what he's going to do. But he has that dog to take care of and that's what keeps him going. And I do want to talk about the ending because I think it's very interesting. Umberto has left the apartment and he goes to the park and he's trying to give Flyke away. He's already had his suicidal thoughts so we know that he's sort of in that zone where he's like you know for the moment he doesn't jump from that window but you can tell he's starting to formulate I need to get out of this world like I need to leave and you can tell because he's trying to give Flyke away. He's trying to find a home for Flyke. That is his main thing. Is like, well, I've got to do this. He, Those people are not suitable that he goes to see. So he goes to the park and he tries to give Flyke to a little girl. But her parents wouldn't like it. So that doesn't work out. So then he tries to sort of distract Flyke and run from Flyke. But then Flyke finds him because that is what dogs do they will not leave you alone they are obsessed with you (laughs) and um they don't want to leave you at all and who knows flyke probably senses that umberto is in this very tumultuous emotional state like dogs can sense that my own dog boomer can definitely sense that at times and he'll start shaking and they can tell when you're upset. They can tell when something's not right. And Flyke may even sense that about Umberto, that something is wrong. I've got to take care of my my uh, master, you know, my Umberto. So then Umberto does something pretty, uh, you know, upsetting, where he just grabs Flyke and goes to the train, the train tracks. And you can tell his intent is to throw himself in front of this train, most likely. But at the last minute, he doesn't do it. And it's this very intense scene, right? Where there's all this dust being kicked up. And Flyke gets so terrified and scared and ends up running off. Well, when I rewatched this scene, something that I don't think I noticed the first time was that when Umberto goes to the train tracks, there are people all around him. Like, there are people there. He's not by himself. It's not, like, abandoned or remote. There are people all around him seeing this man almost walk in front of a train. And after the train passes and Flyke runs away, nobody says or does anything. Nobody goes up to Umberto and says, Are you okay? What were you thinking? Why are you doing this? nothing and that like really shocked me that no one stepped in no one did anything to save him or help him or see if he was okay and I think it speaks to like this indifference on the part of people towards each other especially in this film and in the city where Umberto lives there are quite a few scenes like that where people do not engage with each other where they're indifferent to each other. It's a heartbreaking thing to watch, I gotta be honest, that the lack of caring about other people. And I wonder if that was a result of the war, of just people hardening themselves to each other, just staying to themselves, perhaps. I don't know, but I do think DeSica was trying to say something about the post-war society that he was witnessing, right? And it's not about making Italians come off bad or anything like that. This is not unique necessarily to an Italian city or anywhere. I mean, this happens in a lot of places 
where people are disconnected from each other. People are indifferent to the suffering of one another. People are not engaged with their neighbors or the people right next to them. And there is like this inhumanity at times, I think, in the world. And that's everywhere. That's, hell, that's where I live. That's where a lot of us live. I've experienced it myself in a lot of different situations of people not having compassion, not having any kind of empathy for you. And so that sort of resonates with me, this idea that these people don't care. And it just shows you how alone Umberto is that people see him about to do this. You know, he's gotten very close to those tracks. And then even though he doesn't do it, nobody runs over to him. Nobody asks him how he is. He really is on his own. So Flyke is absolutely so mad at Umberto for doing this and runs away and Umberto goes and looks for him and the dog is hiding behind a tree. Um, You can tell that he was definitely spooked and, you know, Umberto calls out with him. He has the pine cone in his hand trying to get Flyke to play with it and he you know, coaxes Flyke back over to him and has Flyke stand up on his back legs and then he throws the pine cone and Flyke goes running after it. They're friends again. (laughs) You know, the dog forgives him because your dog always forgives you, right? Like, they will always forgive you. To me, it's a really ambiguous ending and I think it's really open-ended and I think it's also deceptively happy and positive. Once again, it's like with that Criterion Collection cover of Umberto holding Flyke. It's just deceptively happy. (laughs) When in fact, it's not a happy ending at all. (laughs) Not to me, at least. In reality, nothing has been solved for Umberto. Yes, for the moment, he's okay. He's playing with Flyke. But we don't know what comes after where will he go? What will happen to him? He still doesn't have the money for the rent. He still hasn't found a place to live. We don't know what's going to happen to him. And I don't think we ever forget his reality when we're seeing this scene. So at the end of this film, Umberto's fate and Flyke's fate are both uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen to these characters at all. Nothing's been solved for them. Nothing has been resolved. In a lot of ways, Umberto is where he has been the entire time. <laughs> he He's made no progress, really. Nothing has changed for him at all. He wasn't able to pay the back rent. The landlady's still going to evict him. He's already left. Nobody to take him in. What's going to happen? Will he end up on the streets having to beg? It's possible. That's what's kind of scary about the film. It's that um, precariousness that's so scary. What's going to happen to Umberto? And we don't know. And before this episode, I did an episode about Kelly Reichardt's 2008 film, Wendy and Lucy. And Wendy and Lucy is really, I'm not going to say it's inspired by Umberto D, but I think it was certainly influenced by Umberto D. And it's about this young woman, Wendy, and she is on her way up to Alaska and her car breaks down while she's in Oregon. She doesn't have any food for her dog, so she shoplifts some food and she gets caught. She gets put in jail and while she's in jail, Lucy, her dog, 
goes missing. A lot of the film is about Wendy searching for Lucy, trying to find her, trying to see what happened to her and to reunite with her. And there are a lot of similarities between the two films. For instance, like when I saw the pine cone scene, when he was throwing the pine cone and Flake was going to get it, it reminded me of the opening of Wendy and Lucy when Wendy's throwing a stick, I believe it is, and then Wendy is going to fetch it. Wendy and Lucy is very much about the relationship between a person and their dog. You know, the dog is a companion and a comfort. Both films are about economic struggle, economic precarity in a lot of ways, about um, lives that become increasingly desperate by the end of each film. But the endings are very different. I won't give away the ending to Wendy and Lucy because you may not have seen it and I don't want to spoil it for you, but I do talk about the ending in my episode. The endings are different, but there are similarities between these two films. And Kelly Reichardt was heavily influenced by Italian neorealism. She was watching it a lot um, before she made Wendy and Lucy, and it was definitely part of one of the inspirations for the film. But if you like Umberto D and you haven't seen Wendy and Lucy, you definitely should because they're sort of in dialogue, I think. Although in my episode, I did not talk about Umberto D because at that time, I had not seen Umberto for many, for several years. And I just didn't, I couldn't remember all the details. And so I didn't want to talk about the film without being able to know the exact details of the film and things like that. So I actually didn't mention it in that episode, but I did want to mention it, mention it in this one in case it's a film that might interest you. Well, in summary, I think this is absolutely a landmark of Italian neorealism. It has so much in it that is in keeping with the movement itself, using a non-professional actor, shooting on location, focusing on the lives of ordinary common people, talking about very common struggles that a lot of people have. That's the thing with Italian neorealism for me is that I feel like you can see yourself in a lot of the characters. There's such a humanity about these films and they do talk about common struggles. Struggles that are very specific to post-war Italy, obviously, but that transcend them and that they do become universal in a way. It sort of reminds me of the Dardan brothers, a lot of their films. And I have an episode about Two Days, One Night which is about a working class woman. And I think in that episode, I talked about that with their work, that all of their films are made in a particular part of Belgium. But the things that they're talking about in the films or that they're showing really transcend that area of Belgium, that it's issues that people around the world are facing and dealing with, especially with economic struggles, financial precarity, class struggle, that is a very common hardship for people is that they don't make enough to live on, that they cannot survive off their wage or their pension or their social security check or their disability check. And in that way, the film is very universal and it's very resonant for a lot of people, I think. And I think that's the thing, the beautiful thing about Italian neorealism, very specific to its own culture and context but themes that resonate with a huge amount of people all across the world in different cultures, in different times, right? It is a movement that is very special, very important to me. And this film has all the, all the hallmarks 
And I think it's one of De Sica's greatest films. It's certainly one of my favorite Italian films. The heart of it, it's about so many things, right? About a man and his relationship with his dog, of course. But about how we treat the elderly. About what it means to really be alone in the world. And to have nobody to to depend on or rely on. All Umberto has is flight. So to me, it makes total sense that his relationship is so powerful with this dog because he has nobody else to lean on and there's nobody else that's there for him through all of this. We see the conditions of women's lives through the story of Maria. There's a beautiful sequence in the film of Maria waking up in the morning and just doing some chores. She's not saying anything. Nothing's really happening. We're just watching her go through her routine And it's incredibly beautiful to watch, to just watch this young woman going about her life. And you care for Maria just as you care for Umberto. And then the both of them care for each other. There is possibilities for connections in this film. And yet they don't totally pan out. That I do feel like Umberto and Maria could have really been friends. And maybe, maybe really Umberto was too proud, right? Like maybe he could have opened up to Maria and said, you know what? I don't have anywhere to go. And maybe Maria could have helped him. I don't know. Maybe she could have known somebody or I don't know what could have happened. But instead he chose to lie and say, oh yeah, I found a place to live. And then he goes off and he wants to kill himself. There was, I think in that moment with Maria, he, when he's standing on the stairwell and he's telling her that he's leaving and she can have the things in his drawer There was a possibility there for something. For him to say, well, actually, I don't have anywhere to go. Can you help me? I guess a lot of this film is about Umberto's inability to ask people for help. Although there are several points in the film when he sees old friends and does kind of ask them for money. I don't know if he outright asks them, but he mentions how he's hard, you know, how he's having a hard time how he needs money and they don't offer it. I mean, I don't know if, if he could have explicitly asked (laughs) and if they would have given him the money, I don't know, but Umberto doesn't seem capable of doing that. He has a lot of pride and I think that pride can hold him back at times and he can't ask for help. He can't say, I'm in a hard time in my life. Can you help me? And maybe if he could have done that, things would have gone differently. Seeing Maria's life and seeing her relationship to Umberto is really uh, touching, I think. And I do think there was a possibility for something more there, like a friendship or a connection, but it passes. And so I do kind of agree with what DeSica says about the lack of communication, that that is certainly there of Umberto's inability to really communicate what he's going through And that he may need help. And he's a bit too proud to do that. That's, I think, what draws him towards suicide, too. Is that he just can't bear to be so degraded. Where he has to beg or he has to ask for help. He can't live with that because his whole life he's provided for himself. And he's been independent. And that's the sense I get. And so for him to have to do those things... It's too much. It's like more than he can take, honestly. And I think this 
film is a real testament to the power of of pets in our lives as well the way that they do give us that unconditional love and how we can get so much more emotional fulfillment from them than from like actual people my dog really does help me because I do struggle with loneliness I do struggle with a lot of things and every time I see my dog every time I see Boomer it makes me smile it makes me happy and I'm really grateful for that like that's a really beautiful thing and it shouldn't be underestimated how powerful that can be and the film is also a really good example of like with suicide how some people can feel so desperate and pushed to that not necessarily because they have depression or something but because of the material reality of their lives that they have nowhere to go and they're alone and they don't know what to do and so it seems like a way out or it seems like an escape the way it seems for Umberto but he's not able to go through with it but you totally understand how he gets to that point this is really a person pushed to their limits pushed to the edge you know like really this film is about that kind of desperation and about being so alone and so scared and not knowing what to do and not having any kind of resources or support system to deal with that you you absolutely believe Umberto when he is suicidal that for him in that moment that's the only way out that's all he can see but flight is what keeps him from doing that if he didn't have flight I think maybe he would have gone through with some type of suicide possibly but he has flight he has that love he has that connection and sometimes that's what keeps us going and it doesn't even have to be love and connection with another person it can be with an animal that can absolutely save us and if that is all we have then that's all we have and that's what keeps us going that's what flight is to him and I totally understand that feeling of like having so little and just finding that one thing to hold on to you know for me it's my mom and it's boomer but my mom is what I hold on to through difficult times but not even everybody has that you know so this is a really it's a devastating film in some ways but to me it's also a very beautiful film it's sad it is bleak it's not the most hopeful film but there is a warmth to it through flight and there's a humanity to it through its focus on this one man just trying to maintain his dignity and keep from being evicted from his home and if you think about it that resonates a lot like with the recession we had the recession in 2008 that's when it started millions of people lost their homes as a result of that recession and of the housing crisis and it's still not talked about there's not bunches of films made about it or even think about what we're going through with environmental degradation and climate change more and more people are going to lose their homes every hurricane season people lose their homes people are losing their homes to wildfires to floods to hurricanes to tornadoes to all kinds of different things that are happening with our environment and the instability of it that theme of losing your home of being evicted or of being out on the streets of not having a lot of resources not having anywhere to go is actually very relevant to the time that we're living in and just a few years ago millions of people lost their homes and were evicted so this is something that plus we have you know 
homeless population in this country. So this is always an issue of people not having places to live or losing their places to live. That's a big part of Umberto Day. A big part of this film is this is just a man trying not to be evicted. This is just a man that doesn't want to end up on the streets. And we feel like at the end that he probably is going to end up on the streets. That is the heartbreaking thing for me. But that's a theme that runs throughout the film that I think is really relevant to the times that we're living in. And you see after these storms that are happening with climate change, you know, I'm not saying climate change is directly responsible for every single storm that happens, but it is creating a crucible. It is warming the oceans that is then feeding these storms, right? And making them more powerful, more destructive as they worsen. And as these things happen, after they happen, we're seeing that it's not just traumatic when the storms happen. It's the aftermath where people are not getting enough money from FEMA or they're not getting enough money from their insurance. And so their lives become very precarious. And where do they go? What do they do? Where are they going to live? They've lost their homes. That's a very relevant theme, I think. And Umberto is facing that as well, not with climate change, but just with, uh, you know, the landlady going up on the rent and him not having any power over it or control over it and the landlady having all the power and also relevant to the world we live in now too, where these landlords can do whatever they want and you don't have any power or control over it. And that's a scary thing. So there's so much in this film, so much that I talked about and I'm sure there's a lot in there that I didn't even touch on but these was these were just some of the things that stuck with me that were powerful to me that were meaningful to me it is such a devastating film as I said but it's also a very beautiful film because of that connection between Umberto and the dog and between Flyke it just that makes all the difference to me and Umberto's abrasive, but his love for Flyke makes him likable, I think. And it you can see yourself in him and you can see his love for Flyke. That makes him very relatable and a very memorable character, I think, and a very human character as well in cinema. I just I love this film. <laughs> I really do. It was it was really it was an intense experience to rewatch it. And to feel so much of those emotions. Really grateful for Italian neorealism. So I will stop here. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.